Today's episode is brought to you by Simply Faster. Simply Faster is an online athletic performance technology shop distributing items such as the free lap timing system, Gym Aware, KBox, 1080 Sprint, and the Speed Mat. I've gotten many of these items from Simply Faster and can confidently say that they make today's best training technology available to everybody. The free lap timing system has revolutionized both my practices and my athlete assessments allowing me to look at the 10-meter fly capability of dozens of athletes in a matter of seconds. It is wireless, compact, portable, and incredibly versatile. The K-Box and 1080 Sprint are fantastic tools for any coach looking to build speed, agility, and implement training scenarios that go beyond the traditional weight room. The 1080 Sprint is being used by great coaches training some of the fastest sprinters in the world, and it truly represents high-performance speed training. I can personally attest that Simply Faster's customer service is second to none, Christopher at Simply Faster responds quickly to queries, and anyone who makes a purchase from Simply Faster is in good hands. If you want to acquire some of the best high-tech training equipment available, stop by simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. They are the future of coaching technology. Welcome to episode 159 of the Just Fly Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Smith, and today's episode is a Q&A question and answer with myself. I don't do these that often anymore, mostly because I have awesome guests. And when you have like people like the last three, JB Marin, Jake Tura, Keith Barr, everyone who's been on before in the last, I don't know, it's been at least like probably 20 episodes Um, I just don't feel like necessarily getting on myself and answering questions, but I do enjoy doing it and I do enjoy seeing what you guys want to know and hear and what are up to. And so I really do enjoy doing these and I felt like it was time to open up the lines and see what you guys want to know and, um, and I'll give my best answer for it in the world of training and human performance. So, uh, we put the questions out, I think this time was just on Instagram. So sorry for everyone on Twitter and Facebook. I think I maybe I'm just getting lazy and I just want to see the answers in one place. I don't know, but there were some really good questions asked and some very diverse and unique questions, which is awesome because it can be tough sometimes doing these. I think this is my sixth or seventh one, and you have to go back and look at all the old Q and A's and all the other questions that was asked and make sure you're not like doing a question twice. I mean, I guess it's not the end of the world if you do, and I might accidentally do it this time, and if so. Um, I'm sorry, I guess. I, hopefully you didn't listen to the last Q&A that had a specific or similar question. But uh, without without any more on that end, uh, here we go. Let's get into some of the questions that you guys asked. There's a lot of stuff on ISOs today, extreme isometrics, a little bit on programming and things like that, and a really good diverse array of questions. And I'm looking forward to getting into it. Here we go. First one, Matt Craig says, what are your favorite running drills that you think correlate, if they do, best into sprint work, either for Excel or max velocity? Okay, awesome. So I uh, just wrote a 340-page book with a lot of this stuff in here called Speed Strength. So thanks for asking. Thanks for uh, teeing me up there, Matt, to talk about this. Uh, a lot of this stuff is in the book, so I don't want to give too much away. But at the end of the day, and any good sprint coach will tell you this, is drills <laughs> is drills are not sprinting. Um uh, that, and I, I've probably said this on a prior Q&A podcast or multiple podcasts probably as I love the Dan Path story. I think it was like the 80s when maybe the, the mock drills were getting more popular and, and he talked about like a group of uh, a group, another sprint team or another track team that had come in and was doing all these fancy drills and it looked really cool warming up and kind of intimidating because they could do all these uh, really fine-tuned drills. And Dan had said, well, I thought they were going to whoop our ass. 
but then we actually competed and they didn't whoop our ass <laughs> and uh, i think i i've i tend to see this a lot the athlete who is very cerebral that hard-working cerebral athlete is oftentimes becomes the drill master they think that they they aren't as good as their peers naturally they're going to try to you know do everything and anything they can to get better a lot of time that man times that manifests itself in them working really hard at drills getting better at drills but the problem with drills this is a the thing I learned from Adirian Barr is that a sprint drill is the typical sprint drills are fundamentally balanced. So basically your feet are always landing underneath you, like like a stabbing motion down right underneath your center of mass. Well, isn't that like sprinting? No, it's actually not. Sprinting, like I learned from Adirian Barr and sprint drills and looking at all that is actually unbalanced. You're going from one leg to another and the, the foot does not hit directly underneath your hips. In sprinting, if it did, you'd fall on your face. Um, just watch, the foot has to hit out in front and it goes through uh, supination to pronation and back through that cycle. And But yet, if you watch a sprint drill, you're basically hitting it in a, with a neutral foot the whole time. It just, there's so many things that are fundamentally different um, as well as just the way it's coached too, like tall hips and all that stuff. Um, but again, I don't want to give away too much that's in my book. Uh, so if you're interested in more t- detail there, I go out and buy it and definitely also check out everything Adarian Barr does because he's really changed my thoughts on a lot of this to the success of athletes and seeing people get faster as well as myself. And it's awesome stuff. Uh, but favorite running drills, uh, I'll just say this, um, <laughs> and I'll leave this with uh, what Adarian said at the last rewire clinic we did in Santa Clara, and that's basically if you want to make something faster, put a squat on it. Uh, for example, just if you're doing a skips or, or, or a runs, sorry, high knees, a runs, uh, just put a little bit of a squat on that a run, the squat, meaning you still have great torso posture, but the hips get lower to the ground and you work an angle that's, um, that a knee angle that's lower to the ground, that movement's inherently going to become a little bit faster. You're relying on compression more. There's more factors that are probably closer to when you're max speed sprinting. I'm not saying sprint as low as you can by any means. I'm just saying that the drills that put you in uh, positions that end up being a little bit closer to what happens you're actually sprinting are always the best. Uh, I love squatty running uh, for many reasons. I just think that it's this fantastic blend of a lot of things. I talked about that as well on uh, Mike Robertson's podcast. So yeah, generally anything that forces you to become faster through compression, squatting. Also, when you squat and do anything, there's a timing um, the timing is of the essence even more because things are coming to you faster. So you have to time things faster. You have to time your arms faster. There's a ton of people who can do an A run just fine with all everything synced up. You put them in a squat, have them do a squatty run, and their timing is going to fall apart. And you can really start to see how the specificity is fundamentally different when you really get into that. So uh, I'll try to tag a squatty running um, little video in, in the show notes here if you want to see what that looks like. And also, again, my book's chock full of this stuff. So uh, so I'll leave you with that. Okay, next question. Dan, uh, Dan I'm not going to try. Dan J. We'll just say Dan J. Uh, process when you start working with a new athlete. Okay, so this is... Um, this is like this could be a whole online course i should make i feel like this is something like oh maybe i should make an online course on this uh this is a process that could be a whole online course and so i i'll just leave it with this I, again I, I i like to do specific nuts and bolts examples for a lot of stuff uh but there are some things that i think are better spoken to 
at least for the sake of a podcast episode speaking philosophically if you have any further questions you can follow up with me on this but um yeah process working with a new athlete beginner or amateur novice untrained and and trained okay so uh someone who's untrained uh, relatively new the big things that i'm looking for and and i really defer to like you know new can be in a lot of things if we're talking like youth athletes i defer to jeremy frisch like if you're you know i i I don't (laughs) i don't work with eight-year-olds but if i had uh, an athlete coming in who was eight or nine and the the parents were talking about assessments and and speed training i would say what jeremy says just just play they just need to play they don't need someone telling them how to move they're still figuring it out and i think that's the process of a great coach that lets people figure it out knows when to let people just figure it out and just move and has the patience to see how things to get come together especially as they mature and naturally and then with the help of weightlifting get stronger from year to year and see how that just changes technique on its own and Jeremy gave a good example of that the last podcast we did together of someone who and then I think himself even like how much further he threw the javelin just through more physical maturity and it's not because and just being a stronger person and not because someone like coached him up on everything now that being said I do think biomechanics are of the essence <laughs> and speaking of javelin I actually think that's why Americans are not very good at javelin because we don't have the technical foundations that the Europeans do or the culture for it to be honest at all or any other country that's really into javelin we just you know we'd rather play football here than throw the javelin really far and uh, for what the money you get from it I don't blame people here for wanting that uh, so I mean good I, I will say this too like your skill development always sets up the rest of your training i agree with that but i don't think that's something that we really want to press hard into until an athlete is really truly ready to train which probably happens more around that 13 14 15 uh or maybe even uh, yeah, probably around that bracket i'm not like a i'm not a youth and long-term expert so i don't want to try to turn this into that end of things uh, but new athletes like new athletes on the collegiate level uh process there is mostly just get them good movers you know can you can you crawl well can you do isometrics in good position do you have control of your body um just through crawling and having athletes do um extreme like isometrics and like overhead squats you can learn almost every single thing about them not every single thing but a whole lot of things you see you learn about their spine where's their locomotion and their big engine coming from in locomotion what's their movement strategy how do they breathe um and then from there uh, just you know watching athletes in their sport is always key I, I think that that may lend more towards you know the ex- that kind of blends more into the experience side when we're really getting into higher transfer pieces but for a new athlete I just want you to do good isometrics I want you to squat and hinge well I want you to be able to crawl well I want you to be able to move well I want you to not hold your breath on everything <laughs> which you can get in like the Tim Anderson stuff I want you to roll well uh, to me Tim Anderson's work and Jay Schrader's work with the ISOs, like you blend those two things together and you have an awesome template for a young uh, or beginning athlete in a program. And then just progressing strength out from there. I do believe new athletes need to get stronger, but stronger is a blanket term. Um, And I just, I think that the strength of the human body comes first and you build on that. An advanced athlete or experienced athlete, it depends on their, their sport and situation a little bit, but I look at like things like the foot, uh what how does that impacting your biomechanics and everything upstream uh, i look at their movement quality are they uh, and that's the thing is is the longer you've been in sport the more experienced you are if the weight room is part of what you do 
you especially if you're good at your sport you don't want the weight room to validate you you want your sport to validate you so you look for those signs of weight room validation where people are tend to be holding their breath trying too hard um taking too much time to psych up for lifts and all that stuff so really trying to bring it back to what's actually important uh neurotyping is huge for an experienced athlete just because at that point in their training versus a, you know, a novice will respond to anything so you can use anything uh but for a i mean and even a novice i think neurotyping is good especially at some point you want to start really getting in their ballpark but for an experienced athlete neurotyping is absolutely critical because chances are they've been through a lot of programs that are for someone who is uh suited for a stronger or weaker nervous system and they just aren't in their they just aren't their element and so once you can really match that neurotyping system to the athlete i think that's where a lot of magic happens that's been my journey the last two years and really creating and building out uh, training programs and libraries and indexes for athletes of different types and how to best serve them in that regard. Also, if you're interested in the neurotyping stuff uh, on Christian Thibodeau's site, the courses, which are awesome, uh, you can use the promo code JustFlySports to get 15% off. And that is an affiliate code. Um, the other things I'll look at with an experienced athletes, their training history. How long have you been lifting, formally training? What have you been doing? Uh, the max strength demands of their sport. I'll look at how strong do you actually really need to be for your sport before it could be uh, a waste of effort or time or even potentially a maladaptation. Um, and that's also not even just strength training, but also particular muscle groups. And what does an elite athlete look like? What's the body type? What's the somatotype at the elite level for what you do? Um, their current max strength, if that meets that standard or if it doesn't, um, I tend to look at things also like performance versus health spectrum and the risk reward of that. Is it going to be worth it to put an extra two inches on your vertical or decrease your 10 yard by you know, a few hundredths or whatever when striving towards that could maybe put you at a little bit more risk of injury when my main job could be just to keep you healthy. And so that's an important consideration as well. Uh, and then I think a lot of it too is, or I'll say this too, I look at the athlete's mentality um, the more I work with really good elite athletes like Olympic caliber, you really start to see the mentality of an Olympic caliber athlete and you start to see how that um, is a little bit different than athletes who are of other calibers. And so that's that's important. I think you know, as, as a strength coach, you're not, um, you know, we're, we're interdisciplinary. You're not a sports psychologist. Uh, but I think that there's a lot of things that a lot of ways that a strength coach, strength being multiple layers, that we can use to bring out the best in our athletes in helping their confidence. And so I think that on that more advanced level, finding things to give them confidence in what they do is very important. Um, finally, the big difference too between like an amateur and a pro, if you will, or a beginner and a advanced is like the beginner, you're looking at more like the bottom of the Bondarchuk pyramid, which is the GPP and the SPE. Um, those are more your emphasis points. Just think typical like high school strength and conditioning on a level. Um, and then once you get up towards advanced, it's all about that SPP and CE or the stuff with the high transfer. And if you're working with advanced athletes as a physical prep coach or strength coach, you know, getting 50 more pounds or even 20 more pounds in their squat max may not make a lick of difference in their actual sport. It probably will make zero in many cases. And so it's your job to figure out what you can best do in terms of ways of best transfer uh, injury, uh, mitigating injury risks and, and helping them decrease injury. Also finding out how can you support the SPP and CE if that's not your job or your wheelhouse by being like a better stress manager and questionnaires 
and and all that stuff. So I think it's you know it's it's a very complex equation. Again, it could be a whole online course, but those are some principles that I kind of look at. Okay, next question. J Rod, I he says I'm coaching 14 to 15 year old volleyball players. Uh, would I do ISOs at the end or the start? Which ones? And we only practice three times a week. Okay, so that's a good question. Uh, you know, I think you could really you can do both. Um, I would cater towards generally doing them at the end, uh, and also kind of depends on how hard you're going. If you're doing like a five minute ISO lunge, uh, or, or going like hard for time or something like that, and you're really pushing the limit, yeah, probably at the end. Generally speaking, is is probably the best time for it. But I think you also can. I've heard of good success stories of doing the, that type of work before. Um, even to the point where I remember I was telling a, a group of uh, swim sprinters that if we held a three-minute ISO push-up and we really crushed it, that afterwards they'd be able to go and bench their max. Um, and they definitely couldn't bench their max after that. It was far less. I, we still hear, I still get stories from that day. Um, and I probably was, there's probably some stuff I was doing wrong. I know that like when you do the extreme ISOs, it really does need to be stretch range. Like that's the extreme portion of it, the extreme joint angle. So if you're not an extreme joint angle, you do lose out on a lot of benefits. Uh, a lot of people actually tag me in extreme ISOs that they're doing, uh, on like Instagram and stuff. And a lot of times they actually are being done, be, uh, they are being done incorrectly. Usually like posture is incorrect or they're not really trying to fully reach that extreme joint angle meaning like a lunge they're not low enough uh, almost always they're not low enough and they're not like maximally like i like to say maximally push your front knee away from your back knee pull down and try to get a length change uh, more so than just survive it i do think there's benefits too from just surviving it but you can get a lot better with with actually kind of feeling a pull and being in that right position and maximal intention and emotion behind it all Okay, so that's a little bit of a diatribe. So I, yeah, I'd, I'd probably go after, but I think if you do them well and you have some good capacity and you're familiar with them, you could do it before. Uh, I did hear a story of a, it was a, uh, a guy who was coaching track who also I think was in the medical profession. He had his distance runners, I believe it was before practice, not after, do five-minute ISO lunch, five-minute ISO push-up. The, the group, they, they could choose to do it if they wanted. They didn't have to, but the group that ended up doing it before I think went injury free that season and the group that didn't uh, had problems. And so you can always look at that too. All right. Next question. C Roy strength. I have a goal to dunk, but have essentially been powerlifting for the last three years. Where is a good place to start uh, getting into more jumping and athletic training after lifting heavy for so long? So good question. I think that it just depends on how much athleticism you've lost. I think it's a little bit different for everybody. I wouldn't, uh, I mean, it's definitely easy to hate on things. Um, you know, it was it was Matt Gifford, who is um, a coach at Next Level in Wisconsin. Great guy, great coach, and has been has definitely had an impact on me. And he did a good presentation. Actually, I missed it. But I've seen like Lao Tzu quotes on this that really like resonated with me. Uh, it was on the middle path. Basically, not going too far to the extreme on either end of things. Always looking, seeing that the answer is probably going to be somewhere in the middle. Um, I do believe that powerlifting can absolutely can hurt your athleticism, uh, if, especially if when you lose reflexive strength and you lose that cross-body strength and everything that comes with that, you become erector dominant. However, I think that, and then oh, I'll, I will say too, the, the big thing is becoming more supination, knees out dominant, uh, and, and not being able to pronate and get to the inside edge of your foot well. I just think that you know some people have more um, negative effects than others. Some people can get through it with less negative effects. 
Uh, if you're a power lifter, but you can pronate really well, you're probably going to be able to go out and sprint and jump a lot better than someone who can't. Um, and so it, it is a spectrum, but the big things, um, I just would look at the resets, like being, uh, get in, do a ton of crawling. Like I just go out in the field for 20, 30, 40 minutes and just do a ton of bear crawls and leopard crawls and army crawls and, and crab walks and maybe some rolls and some crouch walks and all that stuff. So spend some time doing that. Uh, and outside of that, just getting into sprinting, uh, like Tim Anderson said, sprinting is like crawling, standing up, basically. I think it was something to do with that. And so that's another way to just kind of get repetitive cycling in that's going to get you a little bit more out of powerlifting mode. And, and when I say sprinting, I think even like longer sprinting is fine as long as it's of pretty good quality. You're still just getting reps in at wiring crossbody connections, um, tons of extreme isos. Like the extreme ISO lunge, it's like it that that movement's job when you do it right is to eliminate compensations, compensations that may have come through the course of powerlifting. So extreme ISOs and crawling, as I mentioned before, it's it's just such an awesome combination. So that is a good thing to help in that regards. Also, foot training, uh, foot training really complex. Uh, how to pronate is not just a one, two, three uh, process, but Generally speaking, I'll just say this, and David Gray is going to mention this in an upcoming episode of the podcast, just a brilliant uh, physio from Ireland, is just spend more time working on the ball of your foot. Just jumping rope on the ball of your foot. Just spend more time operating on the ball of the foot. And eventually, you'll learn to pronate just a little bit better. There's a lot more integrated stuff into that. And uh, some of that I'm actually getting into in my upcoming book on training the foot. Because if you can't pronate, you are leaking power and it's going to hurt you. And powerlifting can be detrimental to that process of pronating, as the Darian Bar says, getting to the inside edge and outputting or having a great power output. All right. Uh, well, actually, before I get to the next one, I'd say from there, once you get into there, if you want to jump or dunk or whatever, uh, start on a low rim and dunk and just practice and practice a lot of different types of dunking and just get reps in. But don't, the thing is, if you're a powerlifter, I would recommend don't um, get into dunking with the powerlifting mentality. So be fluid, be graceful. Uh, try not to like hold your breath. It's not a grind. Like have fun with it and try to do a lot of different movements as opposed to uh, the powerlifts, which are more restricted movements. Obviously, there's different types of powerlifts, and I certainly have respect for the powerlifts. I don't, I don't mean to like I'm not dissing them by or anyone who does them. I'm not dissing it by any means. And there is variety within the powerlifts even and how you execute it, but there's certainly a lot more within dunking. So take advantage of that. Okay, uh, Acceleration Randy Peters has a question. How do you implement foot arch training with your athletes and or yourself, especially working with those who compete in the water? So that's like a, that's a good question. It's actually good because I if you're competing in the water, there's a very good chance that I will not do any foot or arch training with you because it was kind of like Chong Ji said. Um, he was talking anecdotally for himself because he swims Changji Hyper Arch Hop. Uh, it was episode back in like the 60s. And it was a landmark episode. A lot of people loved it. I learned a lot. But he talked about like basically when he got into Hyper Arch mode, think about like the curled toes, tight fascia through the feet. Now your glutes can activate. I think that also has something to do with the pronation that's coming through with that. Uh, and then all the upstream like foot to core activation, as Emily Splickle says. But when he, he said when he got into hyperarch mode, his, his hips or his butt sank in the water. And when he was out of it, he was fine. And something I've just noticed with like swimmers, especially long course particularly, 
uh, long course being like a 50 meter pool and short course is 25 is all the good swimmers basically it's 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 a inverse dynamics or an inverse correlation if you have a good hyper arch curled toes and you're very reactive off the ground like if you had a good four jump you're probably not going to be a good long course swimmer <laughs> on the other hand if you have a really bad four jump and you have flat toes and your feet don't have like necessarily a lot of like strict tension you'll probably be better and I, I say that because like when you're when that foot's too tight and it's activated it just it just isn't allowed that floppy foot that allows people to be good in the water so uh, if you're a swimmer and you want to be good at long course I wouldn't um, I wouldn't really worry about a ton of foot or arch training however I will say even with swimmers like I have a lot of swimmers uh, if I have a swimmer who can't jump usually a lot of times they can't pronate at all and for short course that is pretty important to get off the blocks better so that is something that I work on uh, or there are actually cases this is a rare case but I actually had a guy who pronated so much and so well and was just um, and he, the guy's an animal too he has a huge vertical jump but he pronates so much it actually increases the length of time it takes for him to get off the blocks so we incorporated a lot of like foot twisting work that I learned from Adarian to improve his uh, response time off the block a little bit more and I felt like that was pretty helpful uh, in terms of just foot arch training in general uh, I'm gonna I'm not gonna get too far into that outside of um, be on the look for next week's podcast with David Gray it's gonna be a fantastic and awesome one um, I will say like you know everyone says train barefoot it is important but the sensory uh, the sensory loops that go into the foot like if, if your foot doesn't sense well uh, just training barefoot may not fix anything if you can never unlock your foot just training barefoot may not fix anything if you can't move your calcaneus just training barefoot may not fix anything it is a more integrated thing um, and I also think that it, it can be like real reductionist too I do think being more forefoot dominant is helpful absolutely a hundred percent uh, but there is some other stuff going on. Uh, I will say too, if, uh, if you're interested in the the arch training, uh, follow Adarian Barr, who is working on basically this. His model is working from the arches up. Be strong in the arches, and how much that dictates everything else in the equation. So, uh, I I I I'd like to answer more, but I'd like to leave some stuff on the table for some future episodes. So I'll just leave it with what I said so far. Check out Adarian. Check out David Gray coming up the next week. Okay, uh, next uh, next question here. We got Gavin 2.0. Shin splints and how bones adapt to loading with the six-hour uh, like recovery or refractory period with um, what Dr. Keith Barr was talking about. So Dr. Keith Barr saying that you have about six hours where, for tendons to the point where you can train tendons again. So technically in like an 18-hour period of the day, you could train your tendons three times and recover and then still gain, still be gaining or improving. Um so, well, the thing with that, though, if you're talking shin splints, shin splints is not a bone issue unless you have like a pre-stressed. I mean, shin splints is a coverall for pain in the shin. Um, it could be a pre-stress fracture. And I'm not I'm not like a sports medicine athletic trainer. So this is just my understanding from back when I was in that major. Um, but the majority of the time, it is not the actual bone. It is the soft tissue around the bone. Like think of the um, deep uh, think of like the deep muscles that exist under the gastroc soleus complex or those little muscles that go up the back of your shin there you can't see them but what will happen if you don't if you over pronate don't pronate well you're not matching the vibration of the ground to your foot and there's there's a disharmony there those little tendons are going to get smoked 
and it's going to show up at pain at the their attachment on your shin. So to my understanding, that's a pretty common um, shin pain issue. Uh, so in that sense, well, you know what, it's, it's still connective tissue in many cases. Usually it is like the tendinous end of those things, the connective tissue end of those things. That is a problem. So if you were training that through various foot and shin and ankle exercises, you would have a six-hour window on that one. So I don't necessarily think, it's probably not the bone, but I wouldn't necessarily think that whatever training modalities are there for it would be any different. All right. Jgill182 says, if you're at a point in training where you're just enjoying jumping and dunking in a very unstructured way, how many accessory exercises would you add to maintain any strength gains you had previously made? Um, not many. I don't know. Maybe if you're just looking lower body, maybe you want a hex deadlift and a Bulgarian split squat and just do easy strength. I think it can be really simple. Um, with uh, the Bulgarian split squat, like a floating heel or like a WEC method where like the you're on the balls of the feet the heels are off the ground could also be like a big bang for your buck there just to make sure nothing gets outrun like your hips don't get stronger your feet or anything like that um it, coming off like the ben patrick episode and, and all that stuff i think having a diet and then keith Barr too having a diet of some sort of tendon health um like something to if you're doing a lot of jumping and dunking then that's like stiff tendon stuff so you may want to come back with something that's more like a compliant tendon stuff so an extreme iso or a sissy squat or something like that just to help protect knees would be solid but other than that there's no um easy strength is just so versatile and by easy strength i mean the book by dan john and pavel where it's essentially you can lift every day you just go really low you're almost like microdosing lifting you're not getting emotionally up for any lift um you're basically using lighter weights to push up your one rep max you're doing like two sets of five or three sets of three or five sets of two or four three two or six uh, singles or one set of ten and you will you'll go ahead and do that for the lift and then you'll do it you can do it every day uh, i'd say i like easy strength like four days a week and something like might be cool would be a split like you could go trap bar deadlift and bulgarians on uh, monday thursday and then do some extreme isos on maybe some sissy squats on tuesday friday boom there you go um, don't think too much into it. The key is to have fun with dunking. And I think that the more, um, the bigger like microcosm you build within the lift itself, sometimes that can almost take away from the joy of everything else you're doing. Of course, it also can add to it if your lifting program is really helping you. But if you're just looking at maintaining, uh, I think that's totally fine. All right, next question is uh, I'll just say Mihaj because I do not want to butcher names because I tend to do that on here. How do you use ISOs to unlock tight calves? Okay, so I'm not, uh, I'm actually unaware of how to use ISOs to unlock tight calves. I, I do think that, you know, tight calves can mean a lot of things. Uh, one of the things with tight muscles or tight groups, and I look at, I, I look at two things on this one. Well, and I'll say this before I get into the ISO aspect of it, but I, it, through learning through a Darien Bar, my mentor basically is, ankles don't stretch out like like if your ankle mo range of motion is not necessarily a lot um stretching out your achilles to get it more to have more dorsiflexion could have ramifications to like stretch shortening cycle time and the way and how long you're spending on the ground for various movements and so especially if you're like a reactive athlete or you have a high priority on reactive strength if you're stretching out your achilles tendons a lot now you have your knee has to pass forward over your toe more before that stretch shortening alarm can go off, that's going to change like your jump biomechanics or maybe your sprint biomechanics on 
on a top end speed or how you accelerate you may be more flat-footed when you accelerate which for team sports could be a good thing uh, but for other situations could not be a good thing so um, I think that just looking at how and why you're tight uh, is is important I also think like like tight calves can also have to do with anterior pelvic tilt if you're I mean try this exercise stay, go ahead and stand up tip your pelvis forward anteriorly uh, like all the way and try to squat pushing your knees over your toes you're not going to get your knees over your toes very far um, on the other hand go roll into posterior as far as you can now push your knees over your toes and it's almost like magic your knees are going to go way further and that just has to do with like the hamstring attachment and how far that's letting you uh, push your knees forward same thing for like sprinting like you're not going to sprint and get high knees really if you're in big anterior pelvic tilt it's just going to kind of throw you down so anyways, uh, one thing I look like with that is like I watch like my kids move and play. My kids are one in three and I think about stretching. I do think about stretching and mobility a lot. I think about like like the extreme ISO system that Jay Schrader has with like the extreme ISO lunge and push up and all these things that themselves are weighted stretching. But there was nothing in that system that ever stretched calves. <laughs> and I think that was for a good reason. And I watch my kids and I think about extreme ISOs a little bit as like, how do we get into our base mode? Just like what Tim Anderson's talking about. And, but I watch my children play and they have like very like, like their shoulder and their hip mobility is just crazy. But their ankle mobility is actually not really any better than mine. When they do their squat, you know, kids can squat well, but that's because they have a huge head. If you had a huge head, you could squat really well like they can too. Um, I watch their ankle dorsiflexion and it's not any, I mean, I don't have insane dorsiflexion by any means at all. I mean, I can just barely get into like a good overhead squat position without really compensating with a, a barbell overhead squat. And like when I demonstrate to show what the right way is for my athletes, I really, it's not like the easiest natural drop for me. So I have a little dorsiflexion, but not a lot, but my kids don't really have any more than I do. So I think of it as almost like I don't, whatever my kids natural setting is, I don't want to like get you more than that. Um, all right. All that being said, you probably do. I, there probably is some sort of general tightness. I imagine you probably have less dorsiflexion than I do and my children do. Um, and so for that, like, but ISOs aren't really, unless it's like a low, uh, like, a, unless the isometric was just holding a calf stretch with weight on you, that wouldn't be any, anything that is going to unlock your ankle. Like typical ISOs for the foot and ankle are going to be like Alex Natera stuff where you're pressing into a bar on one on the ball of one foot as hard as you can in a squat in like a single leg um top of the squat position like that and that uh tightens up the muscle tendon complex its ability to act like a sheet and be really stiff so isos i mean you you could say like with the tendon yeah like that creep with the tendon creep if you just uh like, let's say you just stood on the ball of your foot with the heel a half inch off the ground or maybe in neutral uh, standing with your toe on a block for some time and the heels hanging but not like stretching but just hanging in space maybe that tendon will become more compliant um, but I'm not sure how much that's necessarily going to increase range of motion um, I just I don't really look as isos as an answer for tight calves um, you know tight tighter hips iso lunge and all that stuff but with the ankle I'm not really sure I don't I don't really think that's necessarily meant for it so I'm sorry I don't have a great answer for you there well in terms of what you're uh, current situation was with with that but i hope that information does help or at least give you some ideas okay uh next one humming b what is your current opinion on strength training 
Now, that is a, <laughs> yeah, very blunt and to the point. What's your opinion on strength training? Well, uh, again, I just did write a 340-page or so book on it, uh, Speed Strength. So if you really want to know in complete detail, check that book out. But, I mean, I, <laughs> it's not like I'm going to sit here and say, like, oh, strength training is good. Strength training is I mean, I think strength, well, I think strength training is good. Uh, I'm, I'm, what I'm saying is I'm not going to polarize it. It's just strength training is a tool. I think strength training is great for a lot of athletes. The vast majority of athletes do certainly benefit from resistance training. I just think it's when it it's just a tool, and when that tool becomes something negative, when you're using the tool wrong, I should say, is when it becomes negative. It's like saying, like, is a hammer is a hammer bad? No, a hammer's not bad, but if you start using it and hitting the nails all sideways, I guess it could be. <laughs> so um, it's just like you know, it's 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 good. It offers a lot of benefits for a lot of people. I think when it becomes negative is when it is done in excess in joint ranges and with muscle groups that are not an athlete's um, sport like range of motion like what Cal Dietz has said excessive deep squatting uh, can t increase the time it takes for that quad tendon to get tight um, and so we need to only use deep squats for a certain amount of time then we need to get off of them and and we need to watch how athletes um, approach like the idea of uh, how strong they need to be like becoming mentally tied to one rep maxes and having um, ex expectations in the weight room rather than intentions in the weight room. It's all critical. So I, I was thinking about it. I was writing notes around this question. I think it's kind of like this. Like I want to use weightlifting as my tool to kind of become like a lion or a gorilla, but those those animals obviously don't lift weights. They're just beasts, right? So I want to, and uh, but I watch how those animals move and how smooth and reflexive and innate they are. And I was also thinking too about how Stefan Jones, uh, Stefan Jones just wrote an awesome article on like dopamine um, and athletes today for Just Fly Sports. You can check it out. Uh, last Sunday it came out. But just this idea, we don't have as many like natural talents anymore. These athletes we would call, oh man, that kid is just a natural talent. And I think part of it's because we just over manufacture athletes. Athletes just start doing, you know. It's playing year round so young, and they so they specialize earlier, and they start doing formalized strength and conditioning earlier, where a lot of it's very roboticized, and it's it's there's not enough like just room to free play and just be natural and innate, and this you know natural athlete, and so I think that weightlifting should always be done in context with being as reflexive as humanly possible. You treat it for what it is. Eventually, you want to become a beast with it. But you never want to let it impede that, that natural strength that's inside you that you operate under. And uh, eventually, and then when you have it, when you become uh, more of what you want to be to whatever your genetic potential is for that, not, not everyone's going to be able to squat 500 or 600 or anything like that. But once you have that, you're happy with it and you continue on as you need to. So it's a tool. We just need to use it as, you know, we just need to learn to use that tool better. That's what strength training is. It's good. Swing the hammer right. Okay, SMK Health uh, training in a his question is training in an under recovered state. Can we not fully engage high force motor units if CNS is not ninety five to one hundred percent? So basically, this question is: Should we? Uh, what I take this as is: Should I do like a high CNS uh, threshold stim or stimulus workout if I'm like under ninety five percent? If I'm you know if I'm like ninety two percent or something on the day. Uh, so I do fully believe like what Charlie Francis would say, like if you basically, if you walk into a workout, that's totally neural dominant, like a sprinting workout or like an intense jump workout or a, maybe a power lifting, if you're a power lifter, a power lifting workout, 
and you know you're not going to prove i think charlie said two percent i guess i would just say even one like if you if you know you're not going to improve then you shouldn't do it or you didn't rest long enough now it does take some skill to know if you're not going to improve you can use things like tap tests and and different things and a good coach can just see it in the warm-up that you're not going to hit a pr today or whatever in in the in the exercise you've selected and i think it's a big it's a big difference to hit a pr in like a 20 meter dash 30 meter dash 10 meter fly than it is a lifetime best in like the 100 especially if you've been doing something like that for a while so i say i think that one to two percent thing fits with something a training exercise not competition that is still kind of novel is how i like to look at it so something that's a little novel you haven't totally adapted you're there's still room for learning and exploration and you should be um, you should be gaining if you're not gaining um, now a lot of this has to do with program design setting things up appropriately um, but what if on the day you're not so my thought on that what to do with athletes is you just move to the next neural bracket down like when Christian Thibodeau talks about the neurotyping system when you're stressed usually like if I'm a 1b I start like behaving and more like a 2a and training more like a 2a then you just need to go to the next neural bracket down so let's say I had 10 meter flies on the docket um, I can tell that I'm not going to do that great today. Like, you know, I'm probably, if I, my best is 100 and I'm probably going to run like a 104 or maybe I do the first one and I'm like, you know, okay, this probably isn't going to go so well. Um, drop to the next bracket, which maybe that's like four by 120 on shorter rests, like three minutes rest at about like 85% or something like that. And maybe you're working on a technical component. So there's some small level of capacity. You're still learning. There's an experiential um, component to it because you're still learning, and which is, which is huge, by the way, and you're getting something out of it there. Or you could just say, okay, just come back tomorrow or in two days. The problem with that is <laughs> that total pure auto-regulation where it's like, okay, you're not good enough today, come back. You're not good enough today, come back. I think that only works really well for like muscle dominant athletes because a fascial dominant athletes needs exposure. Like I'm a fascial dominant athlete. If I do that kind of thing where I just don't, never come back to do a workout until I'm fully recovered, I my fascial system loses its its uh, tightness and its spring, like what Ross Jeffs was talking about on that podcast. So you have to be wary of that. But I think you can get away with that more with a muscle dominant athlete where um, they may not need to um, hit workouts quite that much to be as good. So uh, next question, J. Mike uh, says, how to structure workouts, uh, athletic workouts, strength work before or after athletic skill work, and should these things be done on separate days? So this is a, that's a really big question, and I'll just leave it with this. Um, strength work can be done either or. Uh, generally speaking, uh, the general standard is do your skill work first, do your strength work afterwards. Um, you also, though, have the thing where it's like, like the Soviets have said, maximal strength training interferes with skill acquisition. Training above 90% um, interferes with skill acquisition. So basically, if you're looking at skill, you probably don't want to necessarily be having being like in the middle of a max strength phase. Um, and I think the risk reward is just better if you kind of stay under that threshold. Um, and then what Christian Thibodeau had mentioned was that if you're in one of those lower neural brackets or you're like a type 2B or you're an athlete that's really just sensation-driven, like driven in sensations, and you can kind of pick those athletes up by how they lift, uh, you can just tell if they're like just trying to feel the muscle. And, and there's a big difference between an athlete who's just trying to feel a muscle and athletes who's just trying to move through it and be explosive and maybe they're more cheaty, right? They're just seeking like a heavy weight. Um, but athletes who need more sensation can tend to, and Christian mentioned this, 
is they may do better doing something like that, like a three sets of 10, moderate, moderate weight, get some stimulation going before their skill to help with like the stimulation aspect of it. So that's a possibility. I think it's there's no set answer. The standard's probably for to do the skill first. Uh, doing things on separate days, I think if you, I think that's, you know, it just depends on what you're going for. I would say like like a track and field setting, I've, I've had very good success training the jumps like that, like doing strength days separate from jump days. If you set up the week correct, I think it can be fantastic. So anything is possible, just does depend on the individual a little bit. I hate saying it depends, but there are a lot of things that can happen. Okay, uh, just time for a few more questions here. Uh, Mihad says, how do you improve an athlete's technique if you only have one set available uh, in one by 20? So using one by 20, how does this improve your technique with one set and why not go three by eight like cluster sets? Uh, kind of like what Jake Turo was talking about. I think the key is just you with the one by 20s, you just have to start with a very lightweight and really slow cook it and start with uh, weight progressions in the one by 20 that really force good technique like in squatting instead of doing back squats right away maybe you start with a double kettlebell front squat or something like that that forces an athlete into a better position and as well as the weights you know if it gets too heavy their arms are going to fall and they 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 just can't go that heavy and so you starting with weights in that one by 20 that kind of forces a better technique i think is important and i do think it, it does build technique if the weight isn't overly heavy because there's a lot of motor learning going on through the back half of that set and it's not so through the fatigue, the motor learning. And I think the system is becoming robust because it learns to deal with subtle fatigues or somewhat heavy fatigues in the latter half. Um, and then it's just up to the coach to make sure that stuff isn't falling off and to stop the set when need be. And then I think after that, you could move into like Jake Turris cluster training, maybe like a four sets of five on one minute rest or something like that is a good progression. Okay, Talu Run says, take on foam rolling. So this is a good one. It brings me back to the episode we did with Quinn Hennick, uh, where he was talking about basically we talk about foam rolling. The, well, my favorite, one of my favorite blasts from the past was, um, and I believe this when I heard it, like maybe over ten years ago, was well, you need to foam roll before you stretch because that gets the knot out of your muscle, <laughs> and uh, and then you can stretch because the knot's out, and but. I don't think that foam rolling, having been worked on by skilled therapists versus like, you know, you just, I think my wife bought me like a health club massage where they just basically, there's no trigger point release there. It's just basically a general um, effleurage or general rub for an hour. And there's no like true trigger point therapy versus a very skilled trigger point therapist to actually get the trigger point out is a totally different story. There's usually very skilled point pressure on the trigger point for at least a minute uh, and that's not how people use foam rollers they just roll back and forth kind of I, I rarely see them use where it's like oh here's and you would maybe could try a lacrosse ball for that but I think it would take a level of skill I rarely see a lacrosse ball even being used where it's like that level of precision let's find this exact trigger point we'll sit on it for a minute or two and we'll just really skillfully try to let that thing go you never see SMR being used like that so what is it good for well the next thing you could say is the fascia well, Quinn had said that the fascia is so strong that I think you could barely even pierce it with a nail or something like that. Like it's tough and you're not going to take a foam roller and like iron it out like it's an iron and you're ironing your clothes. So, so what is it good for? Um, I think it's, it's just all neural, like it's neural stimuli to the body that can reduce perception of pain 
and it draws your awareness to an area helps draw your body's awareness to an area i think just the power of awareness and getting some stimuli into an area can help um ease tissue uh pain i know i've i've when my knees hurt and i foam roll my it quote unquote here's some air quotes it bands or the lateral aspect of my quads my knees feel better did i fix my did i take the knot out of my uh, muscle no did i iron out my fascia no I think all it did was it just kind of eased the muscle tension um, on that myofascial unit on my vastus lateralis and through the IT band. You know, whatever control systems were there, I think they just got a little bit looser and maybe it matched more with what was happening on the other side of my quad. Uh, I just think it's um, it's just mental. <laughs> it's easy to say, right? Like, But what I, what kills me is when people just, um, they get in the way room and they just sit there. The first thing they do is just hop on the phone roll and just haphazardly just start rolling. I don't like that. Um, I was trying to find alternatives for that pretty regularly. Kind of, that's a vibe cramper for me. Uh, so that's my take. Okay, last question. We'll try to run through this quickly. How do you reduce ground contact time for high jump? Obviously, bounding, hurdle hops, rudiments, sprinting. Uh, but technically, do you have any cues for a high jumper to get off the ground quicker with a stiffer plant leg and uh, less knee bend? So that. All right, so the thing is, is technically, like the amount of knee bend you have is pretty much going to be uh, set for what your myofascial tuning is. Uh, and then how your foot's working. So that's like the number one, gonna be the number one thing. Also your timing. So where are your arms and, and where's your swing leg when your foot is contacting the ground? If your timing's off, you'll be on the ground for longer. So things like just looking at like how your arms are operating. You could also look at like long short versus short long stride patterning. Darian Barr talked on this on our asymmetry episode. We're just talking about basically like if you're going a long then short being the last step, long then short. So you're setting yourself up for a long second to last, short last step. That kind of setup does reduce ground contact time, uh, but that throws you in a more uh, horizontal motion. So if you would look at a high jumper who has a short last step, uh, I believe like a Stefan Holm would be a good one to watch. Uh, he, he covers a lot of distance over the bar. Whereas um, I'm trying to think of like a good short long, um, Okay, uh, short long. Uh, Anna Chicharova, a Russian high jumper, is a good short long example. So she she takes a long last step because and her flight pattern is more vertical, more straight up and down. And so there's different strokes for different folks, but that long last step is going to carry with it uh, a longer ground contact time by nature. So to go shorter would mean you have to go short in the last step, which would be a different parabola, which would be a different outcome. I, so in that sense, I'm not necessarily super worried about a lot of the technical cues. You just need to find what works for you in the sense of how you are you a short. And if you're a short long or a long short, I think usually that's for a reason. The, I mean, I think with a lot of these high jump athletes, I don't think a coach told them to do that. I think their body just did it, and we learn a lot from our subconscious. And we just try to like refine that over time. I don't think it's often we really truly need to flip an athlete's natural rhythm. But everything else is really... Um, structural so having stronger feet uh, having strong knees like having a rigid foot really that ground contact time is foot up uh, it's foot and ankle and calf complex up and so just doing a lot of work there we'll get the job done hopefully get you a faster ground contact time okay that was a lot of questions we did it all it's under an hour so I hope you guys enjoyed that Q&A it's been a while it was fun to do it again and I look forward to the next time I get you around to questions if I didn't answer your question I'm sorry and uh, if you want to uh, follow up with me on Instagram or anything like that, I can do my best to get back to you. So uh, this is Joel Smith signing off for episode 159.